Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today we are very excited to be joined by Daniel Stid. Daniel is the executive director of Lyceum Labs, a project of the Defending Democracy Together Institute that seeks to reimagine political leadership and parties and the contributions they could make to U.S. democracy by rallying a coalition of like-minded charitable organizations dedicated to these goals. He's also previously served as the founding director of the Hewlett Foundation's U.S. Democracy Program. And he writes a blog called The Art of Association. For our fall 2023 issue, Daniel wrote an essay about why the polarization and tribalism that plague our politics today can be traced back to the push for so-called responsible party reform in the mid-20th century. A group of conservative scholars at that time, however, warned against too many changes to the traditional party system. By revisiting their thought and writings, policymakers can develop practical party-centric reforms that better fit the American constitutional order and solve the challenge of union in a diverse nation. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Dan and Hell. Great to be here with you. Look forward to the conversation. Certainly, certainly. So, Daniel, we wanted to start with a recent event that has dominated coverage of Congress and anybody who's kind of in the policy world and community, the turmoil in the House of Representatives. With Kevin McCarthy, of course, being the first speaker to be voted out while he's currently in a legislative session, suggests that there's still a lot of dysfunction and turmoil in the Republicans, but also really both political parties, to be fair. And so in your essay, you write that the polarization that we see today is the result of the degradation of the two parties, Republicans and Democrats, and that we need a party system that is more suited or better suited to the constitutional order the founders created. Obviously, we've drifted from that, and you you choose to go back to the mid-20th century as a time when things were different. Specifically, you're focusing on this group of conservative scholars, you call them small-c conservatives, who thought differently about the party system. And they viewed the problem of union, of unifying a diverse nation, as the main challenge for American politics. Tell us a little bit about why you chose to focus on this group of scholars, and what did they have to say about American parties that is different than how we think of them today. Sure. I mean, we've we've come to see parties as the source of our polarization and division. And in the current context, I think that's a certainly a reasonable judgment. Mm-hmm. What, what was interesting to me is that historically, the American party system was seen as a something that was contributing to holding the political system together. It was ungainly. It was heterogeneous. It was pragmatic. Mm-hmm. What, it was kind of irresponsible in the European or parliamentary sense of that word. Mm-hmm. In that respect, it really focused more on coalitional politics versus confrontational politics. But for a, a diverse republic cast on a continental scale with really complex institutions, separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, that kind of a pragmatic party system and the moderation that was inherent in it really kept the country hanging together Mm. over decades in ways that this conservative cohort that I zeroed in on appreciated and lifted up and tried to commend to their fellow political scientist perspective. But in the mid-20th century, there was a tremendous push to make parties uh, more coherent, more disciplined, more responsible, to nationalize them, to do away with some of the state and local idiosyncrasies that used Mm -hmm. to characterize our party system. And in many respects, 
that push has succeeded and I think has brought us to some of the problems that we're having making collective decisions today. So this cohort you, you talk about was a really distinguished group, men like Pendleton Herring, Austin Rannian, and Wilmore Kendall, Clinton Rossiter, Edward Banfield, James Q. Wilson, and it's worth noting one of Kendall's students was uh, William F. Buckley Jr., with whom he felt helped found National Review. And you, you call these scholars realists who had reconciled themselves to humanity's crooked timber and who are also very aware of the challenge of preserving, of conserving a Republican form of government, even on, on this continental scale in America. So, and, and I think you specifically touch on the way that these scholars were very aware of what Randy and Kendall termed a very high civil war potential in American society, which I, I think there's a growing cognizance of that civil war potential today. So how did America's political parties in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, help to diffuse that potential specifically? Sure. I think there were a few different ways. One is, and in, in a way to think about it, now we talk about the party system and the Democrats confronting the Republicans. Mm-hmm. It was much more common back into the day to speak of the American party system was really consisting of 50 different party systems. <laughs> so each state tended to have its own local dynamics. So, you know, in New England, you had a lot of, of liberal and moderate Republicans squaring off against often the Irish or Italian or Portuguese machines in the cities. <laughs> you know, and every region had its own idiosyncrasies. So the decentralized nature of the American party system, really from the Civil War up through the 1960s, served to muffle conflict. The parties were what we might call today big tent parties. They took all comers. If I was to tell you... You know, if you were to say someone was a liberal or a conservative in the mid-20th century America, that wouldn't have given you a lot of information to place them in a political party. Yeah, Whereas today, yeah. Yeah. You, it would give you basically all you would need to know for the <laughs> most part. And so that, the, the, the heterogeneity of the viewpoints expressed within the party, the decentralization of, of the party system, and frankly, the pragmatism and the coalitional style of politics that that party system organized along those lines gave rise to all serve to, you know, channel political conflicts back in bounds and avoid the sort of confrontational polarization dynamics that have become endemic over the past two or three decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as, as a follow-up, I, I think, could you, per, in your essay, you referenced the role of civil rights and segregation in kind of causing the downfall yes. of that system. So could you sure. yeah, just speak about how yeah. that... And I, and I think one of the things that, that is, is important to acknowledge up front is I'm not proposing in this article that somehow we can or should go back to course, some good yeah. old day. What I'm trying to suggest is that there was an illogic or there was a, a logic and appreciation for, to your point, how the, the fragility of our social order and the need to have politics in our republic keep coming back to the center versus flying out to the polls in a... And the party system that really up through the the 50s and 60s worked towards that end. Now, I think there were a couple of sources of instability built into that party system. And even, you know, we we talk about the in the in the piece, the 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 number of political scientists who were appreciating its virtues. But a close read of those scholars also 
notes the the sense of which this good thing might be passing. And I guess I would pick in mm-hmm. particular on a scholar who had a long association with AEI, James Q. Wilson, who wrote a mm-hmm. great book, The Amateur Democrat, in the 19, early 1960s, where he noticed that in both political parties, issue activists and more ideological, what he called amateurs, were in all across the country working to take power within the party away from these more pragmatic political machines and bosses and ward healers that characterize the party system of yore. One of the things that really enabled them to do that, I'm going to come back around to your question about civil rights. So that was, I think, the the, the big fundamental shift. But prior to that Hmm. was civil service reform. So the, 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 the decentralized and pragmatic party system that I've been talking about was really anchored in the patronage system. And so the the most government jobs at the local and state and even the federal level, like, for example, uh, in particular, postmen and women, were basically given out as rewards for loyal party mm-hmm. service in the in the election. And so there was a, a clear tie between the ability to use the government to reward your followers and political success. And that led to a certain pragmatism and a, and a moderation in viewpoints because you mm. wanted to get as big a possible coalition to maximize your political power. But of course, starting in the progressive era, the, you had both at the local and then at the state level, and then especially at the federal level, civil service reform that took more and more of those positions and pulled them out of politics and classified them as in being in the civil service. Right. And that really struck one, you know, really drained a lot of the lifeblood out of these traditional party organizations and the, the impulses towards pragmatism and and diversity of perspectives that tended to prevail within them. A second, and I think ultimately the thing that dealt that traditional party system the, the its death now, was the the its accommodation and tolerance of mm-hmm. not only Jim Crow, but the, the thousands of lynchings between the end of Reconstruction and the, the end of World War II that, you know, kind of basically terrorized African Americans in the South kept the, the South solidly democratic. What's interesting now is we think of mm-hmm. of the South as being solidly Republican, mm-hmm. but really up through the early 70s, it was solidly democratic. And, yeah. and this was the old Confederacy. And the, the decentralized nature of the party system that I've been referencing had a lot of virtues and that it tended to avoid the the nationalization and thus the polarization of politics that we've subsequently seen, but one of its great flaws and ultimately what destabilized it was its accommodation of this basically authoritarian system of racialized exclusion and violence in the states of the old Confederacy, which we come to now describe as the Jim Crow era. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the reformers, especially in the Democratic study group and these these caucuses that started Mm. to form right after World War II in the House and Senate of Mm. typically young, upcoming, off-frequently World War II veterans like Hubert Humphrey, like Richard Bowling, and others who were pushing for much more a responsible party approach where they wanted the Democratic Party to be consistently liberal, consistently supportive of civil rights, and wanted to do away with the really decentralized policy approach the Democratic Party had taken, which led the Democratic Party at that time to encompass not only liberals like these leaders, but also arch-conservative segregationists like the representatives mm. from the South. So eventually, that that contradiction 
between what was happening in the South and the way in which the congressional reformers who were really trying to advance civil rights seized upon responsible party government as a mechanism to crack that open. So, Mm. you know, as a conservative journal of affairs, you know, I I think you you all can appreciate that there, there often are these kind of contradictions and complexities. So that was clearly an aberrant system. And, you know, insofar as changes in our party system led to its demise, that is a good thing, but but a number of other bad things have come in tow. So the question I'm trying to explore, I realize this is a long-winded answer, is can we recapture some of the system-enhancing virtues of the prior party system without having to have it be bogged down by these uh, problematic and, in some cases, terrible aspects? As you're saying, Daniel, you can understand, given the problems with patronage and race relations in the South, you can understand the logic of why these party reformers wanted to do what they did to create these two more centralized parties that wouldn't allow oppression and discrimination at the local level and state level. But kind of what they wanted, and and somewhat close to what we have now, is a more of a European kind of Westminster-style system. With, again, two centralized parties, if a party wins an election, they're kind of the majority party, they can do whatever they want, shove it down the minority's throat. That obviously very much concerned the conservative group, group of scholars that you're talking about. I think it's interesting you mentioned James Q. Wilson. He had this really prescient quote um, that I think struck us all when we read your piece for the first time, where he said that if these changes went through and we had two centralized parties, um, he said, quote, political conflict will be intensified. Social cleavages will be exaggerated. Party leaders would tend to be men skilled in the rhetorical arts. And the party's ability to produce agreement by trading issue-free resources will be reduced. Now, that kind of just sounds like exactly yes, yes. <laughs> what is going on today. <laughs> Tell us why the conservative scholars you're, you're writing about were concerned about that, and also how the party system we have today isn't necessarily suited to the constitutional order created by the framers with separation of powers, yes. bicameralism, checks and balances, those kinds of things. Sure, sure. Uh, so I, I, there was this tremendous surge, started during the Depression, but definitely through World War II, that the circumstances of politics and policymaking had fundamentally changed and that the features of the American party system that had always, you know, in recent decades defined it, and going back to the Constitution, the separation of powers, federalism, as Mm -hmm. we've been discussing, and this party system that was kind of both accommodated to that complexity and Mm -hmm. served to reinforce it and thus served to moderate the policy policies that could be produced by it. That was seen by the advocates of the of responsible party government as an outdated and obsolete mindset. Now, what's really interesting, and this is taking you back into the myths of my dissertation in graduate school, but this <laughs> argument was first made by Woodrow Wilson, who was a young scholar mm. in his own right in 1885, and his dissertation, which came to be known by the book title of Congressional Government, he he singled out the separation of powers as what he termed literally a radical defect in the Constitution and said alternatively that power and strict accountability for its use are the essential constituent elements of good government. And, and in the British parliamentary model, that is a very fair statement of the core logic of that system. I think the challenge that Wilson encountered and then subsequently the advocates that followed him, in particular E. Schatzneider and the famous 1950 American Political Science Association Committee on Political Parties, mm-hmm. they felt that they could superimpose these more nationalized, responsible, and disciplined political parties on this institutional complexity of, of the constitutional features of the regime. 
sweep the complexity away and effectively have responsible party government, parliamentary style government here. Right. Uh, it turns out we can um, have ideological parties that that basically brook very little, if any, dissent, but we can't have the responsible party government and policy making that the advocates of that parliamentary idea presume could be the case, simply because it remains the case that we have all these checks and balances that will require politics to occur not just during elections, but after elections Mm. in the process of representation and negotiation and compromise. So despite the warnings of Wilson and others that you've quoted, the party reformers, the you know yeah. heirs of Wilson and um, James Q. Wilson, I think we're talking. Oh, about. Uh, the yeah. heirs of yes, yes. Woodrow Wilson triumphed over yes. George Q. Wilson. James Q. Wilson that. warned yeah. and got yeah. got. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some would say the wrong Wilson. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Some would say yeah, and the the vision of Chat Snyder yeah. and 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 others triumphed, and yeah, as as a result, American parties are nationalized, ideologically rigid. And as you've said, we can't and really shouldn't want to go back to the exact party system we had. But among the lessons that you mentioned that we can maybe learn from from those older ways of, of, of operating parties are having a certain degree of factionalism within the parties, reviving local and state party organizations, implementing fusion voting is, is one thing you mentioned, and instituting constituency-based campaign finance reform. So... Walk us, if you could, a bit through some of the kind of nuts and bolts of the the policies that could work towards revivifying. Sure, sure. And let me, if I can jump in here, to set the stage for specific reforms, we might pick up on on a, a very, another prescient article written not by an American political scientist, but by a comparativeness comparativist named Juan Linz, who was a political scientist hmm. at Yale. And he wrote a book in, wrote an essay in, in 1990 called The Perils of Presidentialism. And he was a scholar of democracy in Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula and noted that, in general, systems characterized by presidential versus parliamentary systems, that is where you have an independently elected president who is not beholden or responsible to a legislature, tended to be inherently unstable. So a lot of the political upheavals in Latin America, where you have a lot of presidential systems, he tied back to the the presidential nature of the regime. And that, But that, of course, begs the question, well, America also has a presidential system. And, and, and through 1990, with the notable exception of the Civil War, for more than 100 years, it had been marked by tremendous stability. And so Linz anticipated this objection, said, well, the one outlier to my theory is the United States. And the only reason that the United States is able to hang together as a stable democracy with a presidential system is that it has very decentralized and pragmatic political parties. Mm -hmm. And if ever the United States party system became more ideological, more principled, more nationalized, we would find the kind of instability and the contestation of elections and the institutional tumult that you have continued to see in a lot of Latin American countries in the U.S. So that's another... So I think... very interesting. So the question then becomes... So it's clear that, that James Q. Wilson laid down a warning, it was rolled over. Juan Linz laid down a warning, it was rolled over. But the question that I, you know, wrap up the article with is, what would it take for us to return to a somewhat more heterogeneous, pragmatic, and non-ideological party system? Mm -hmm. So, and I, I talk about 
a, a few what I call them green shoots because it's not obvious to me that any one of these developments will be sufficient in and of itself or that it actually will in the long run amount to much. But they are, I think, some interesting responses to this problem that could take us combined with some other innovations that maybe we can't even anticipate at this point in a healthy direction. So the first one, and it's one that you've had some terrific scholars already write about in the in the journal, is the idea of intra-party factionalism. And the, you know, one thing that characterized our party system, which used to drive the advocates, Woodrow Wilson forward, of responsible party government crazy, is a lot of dissension and conflict within the parties because they were big tents and encompassed a lot of different interests. And I think there continues to be much more diversity of opinion within the parties than we naturally encounter. I think this, the contestation of the speaker within the Republican Party is highlighting some real differences. Like it's been real interesting to see this notion of the five families and these different groupings <laughs> of just even Republican lawmakers. So, and I think you see similar types of groups within the Democratic Party. So what so what would it take to allow this factionalism to more fully express itself? I think it's going to take, in addition to leaders within the parties expressing those diverse viewpoints, you know, developments within civil society, think tanks, and people sharing ideas that could really inform and support that factionalism. And that's thing one. I think a second thing, and a number of scholars on the progressive side have written about this, but there's also some really interesting developments within, within the Republican Party, is the revitalization of local and state party organizations, which have really been eviscerated over the years, not least by some well-intentioned, but ultimately the first effects of, of campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the more that political parties are vibrant in particular places and attentive to the needs and interests of those places, the more pluralism is going to filter and percolate up into the national parties. Mm-hmm. So revitalizing those local and state party organizations in ways that have them responding not to the national conflagration, but rather to the needs and interests of people in those communities, that could be a a promising development. A third development is fusion voting. And you see this in a few states now, in particular New York and in Connecticut. And there's a couple of court cases pending that could make this more broadly available. Mm -hmm. Fusion voting is just the ability of a minor party to endorse a candidate nominated by a major party, if the major party wants to accept their endorsement, it basically allows for more kind of coalitional and multiple parties to exist, especially at the local and state level, as we've seen in New York and Connecticut, and more for kind of coalitional dynamics within both the Mm -hmm. minority and majority parties in fusion voting systems. The last thing, which I think is really interesting and probably the most nascent is a development in New York State with a new approach to public financing of campaigns Mm -hmm. that ties the public matching in a really generous way to contributions to people from within the district that Mm -hmm. you are representing. So that's another kind of decentralizing development that could lead politicians to be much more attentive to their actual constituencies. Sure, sure. I was wondering, as I was reading your essay, what you would think about the sort of reemergence of a sort of intra-party factionalism in the speaker race and whether that's healthy in some ways. I think the consensus among most observers is that it isn't, but I think that's interesting to hear you point to a way in which maybe it can be clarifying, but yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I recently likened the speaker's contest 
in the within the Republican conference to being in an intersection and seeing a bus veer to avoid a car that suddenly pulled into it, get up on two wheels, and then go through the intersection on two wheels. And there's one scenario where the bus lands safely and moves on, in which case the crisis has been averted and something promising may have happened as a result of that. <laughs> yeah. Or alternatively, it could tip over and disaster could ensue. So, But I do feel like we're at one of those moments where it's not mm. yet clear what the outcome will be. And I think if you look back at the times when our parties and our legislative institutions have changed dramatically, uh, it's, it's, it's often in unpredictable ways in this kind of uh, punctuated equilibrium, as a social scientist would say, mm-hmm. that suddenly there's a lot of rapid change in a short period of time. And I do think that if, if Congress and our parties could become better seedbeds for the range of factions that actually exist, as we've seen within our society, that that would lead to a healthier politics. We still would have yeah. contention, yeah. but we would probably have more coalitions and less confrontation. Mm. Yeah, Daniel, as, as we wrap up the conversation here, it strikes me, too, that to get toward more of what you're saying, a more pluralistic party system, where more factions and yeah. interests are represented, we need one of our parties to finally like win a decisive majority, get to closer to a 60% coalition than a 50-50, for example. And just to think about ways to, to get to that, obviously, you've already outlined some reforms. I've also seen other scholars write about the idea of changing how party primaries work and specifically doing something like ranked choice voting, which maybe if implemented could encourage more moderate candidates to merge as the party nominee, whether maybe starting with congressional, maybe presidential one day. Is that the type of thing that can get us to a place where we actually have larger coalitions forming American politics again? Are there other things you're you're looking forward to or working out with Lyceum Labs? Tell us more about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, let me pick up on the first thing, mm. which, which I think gets at the, the heart of what we're trying to work on at Lyceum Labs, which mm. is I, I would concur that getting to a point where one of our parties is really reaching out to encompass what we might call the exhausted, the median voter and the exhausted majority, which is about okay. somewhere between, you know, roughly about two thirds of the electorate that sits between the more activated and ideological polls on either side. Mm. And I think it, it and, and uh, a couple of things. One is, I think it may be less that outcome and more the approach to politics that could lead to that outcome, which would, because by definition, for a party to do that, they would need to lean into the center and to the diversity while preserving the support from their exactly. polls. So it would, yeah. almost by definition, a party that could bring about that kind of majority would need to be a bigger tent. And yeah. that yeah. gets, I think, the heart of of the, 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 the basic idea that behind Lyceum Labs is that the way to reform pol- politics is ultimately through politics. That is, by building bigger tents, by leading in a way that uh, attracts more uh, support. It, it sounds, you know, like a, a cliche and simplified to say that, but I really think that is the heart of where we're at. Now, at the same time, your point about how a lot of the features of our electoral system, ironically, Oh, well, I won't, I'll split the irony. I won't go into the irony. But you know, re, a lot of features of our electoral system reinforce these yeah. problematic patterns. Certainly, primary elections are a huge part of that. Mm. I do think the use of ranked choice voting in primary elections, especially where the parties themselves could, as recently the the Republican Party of Virginia did with the election that yep. led to the, the nomination that led to Glenn uh, Youngkin's election. That's the kind of thing we need more of. I know that there are 
some advocates in both parties that are thinking about uh, ranked choice voting as one way to go about this. But I also think we need political leaders and political parties that are trying to go about things differently as as part of the equation too. We can't we can't reform our way to political changes that our, our politics themselves are not going to support. Sure, sure. Yeah, Daniel, well, that was a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I think I like your slogan of the only way to reform politics is through politics. Yeah. I think that's something national affairs can, can endorse. But we really appreciate you writing the essay and coming on to discuss it. It was it's fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been good to discuss it. Of course. If you'd like to read Daniel's essay or other articles in national affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.